0: Welcome to Histórias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm joined by Antonio Saldivar, a professor at California State University San Marcos, to discuss his work on code switching in 13th century Aragon. So Antonio, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, so I thought uh, to start out, maybe I'd get you to just give a little bit of background about governance and language in medieval Aragon because I'm sure our listeners know that governance in those days was very different from the from the modern period that kings were the top nobles rather than having absolute power in the in the medieval system. So if we're focusing on the king of Aragon Jaime or James the 1st, what were the lands that he uh, controlled and what languages were spoken at that time? Uh, he did. He ruled for a long time, and that's uh, in large part
1: because his father, who was Peter II, died in the Albigensian Crusade, protecting his or trying to protect his vassals against uh, papal crusade against heresy in southern France. But when he inherited the throne, what he inherits is the throne of the Kingdom of Aragon. That's the kingdom, and Aragon is a, at that time it's a political entity separate from the County of Barcelona which is what we would call today Catalonia. So those are the two major jurisdictions that James inherits from his father, Um, the kingdom of Aragon and the county of of Barcelona, of Catalonia, with some possessions in in southern France, Montpellier, and areas like that. And uh, each region uh, speaks its own language or a variety of its own language. In Aragon, the language that's spoken is Aragonese, a language that has since disappeared, Mm -hmm. essentially, and that's in large part because of its similarities to Castilian they are part of this sort of same Iberian language family that emerges in contact with Islam, so it has Arabic influence. And if you were to read, I think, 13th century Aragonese text and the 13th century Castilian text, um, you're not going to see that many differences, as opposed to Catalan, which is the language spoken in Catalonia, which is a language of the Occitan family, Southern French family uh, of languages. So that one is noticeably different. Uh, It doesn't have the Arabic influence, for example. And those are the two Primary language is spoken, as well as Provençal in his in the southern French possessions that James inherits. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the frontier areas, what you have is a mix. If you go to parts, uh, you know, the borderland between Catalonia and Aragon, you have a mix—a very Catalanized, Aragonese, or more Aragonese Catalan, and so on and so forth. Because uh, right. these these languages haven't been um, standardized in any way. They're they really haven't been written too much either. But when James comes to the crown, mm-hmm. inherits the crown, they're relatively new literary languages.
0: Yeah, and and that actually brings me to my next question because I know you mentioned that James the first is on the forefront of this transition from just conducting governance orally to doing it in uh, in written form. So. How did they carry out this governance in writing, right. and what languages yeah did they used for it's,
1: that? Actually, it's it's during his reign that that the institution of the um, royal chancery is created. So before James, you really don't have a royal chancery, and this is typical of Europe. Royal chanceries are a product of the late 12th, 13th century, uh, when these kings and princes are organizing themselves a little bit more, thanks to the reemergence of Roman law. That that. Empowers their centralization efforts, right? They're, they have these jurists who are coming up with legal codes that are more Romanized, and hence more centralizing. And that's what's putting the king in conflict, as you said earlier. I think it's a good um, depiction. The king is essentially just a noble with a with a higher title. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's the king, um, and that's what gives him this prestige, uh, much more so than being the count of Barcelona. This institution allows him to rely on the written word. Which the kings, starting in the 12th century, are really using as a way to centralize their power. The written word allows the king; it sets him apart, in having this institution, the chancery, from the other nobles who grudgingly and eventually see the um, the benefit of the written correspondence for governance and begin to adapt it. But you have uh, we have sources of nobles, for example, the ancestor of one of the rebel nobles that you probably ask me about later, who's like, oh, who can, who needs the who cares about the quill? It's the sword that matters. <laughs> but, uh, but clearly by the middle of the 13th century, they care very much about documents as well. Right. So I, I think uh, the writing allows kings to, to further centralize their regime. So this is part of this call reforms or changes that are occurring. You have the increasing importance of the written word. It's not new, but it's becoming more important. You have the rise of lay literacy. So it's not only clerics that are learning to read and write now. Um, the king is helping finance, and so are some of the city governments, to have laymen, um, mostly members of this urban patrician, That's developing in this period to go Mm -hmm. study in Bologna somewhere else to study civil or canon law, and then they come back and they serve the administration, they serve the king, and that one of the biggest feuds that's going on at this in, in this period is precisely the fight over jurisdiction between the king who wants to increase his jurisdiction of what the power of the king means and the nobility that wants to hang on to the traditional feudal jurisdictions. And you have this sort of fight between the nobility and the king. And the king is allied more or less with the urban centers in facing off the traditional feudal governance.
0: I was interested when I was looking at your work at the amount of conflict that there was between James and uh, his nobles. But that makes sense. That they're trying to resist this assertion of his authority, right? And 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 most historiography, especially in 19th century historiography,
1: they for the most part ally themselves with the the royal perspective because that's what they view as part of this modernization, the the rise of the centralized monarchy, which will later become the absolutist monarchy, which later becomes the nation state. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of and especially in this national lens, right, nationalistic lens. It's like oh, the king of Aragon, and then you come to Barcelona you know, uh, it's sort of the origins of our government, which is not necessarily the, right. right the case. Um, but in reality, what's happening is the king is increasing his his jurisdiction. He is coming up with innovative ways of increasing his power, and the nobility is fighting him at every every step of the way mm-hmm. because they don't want to lose their traditional jurisdictions. For just to give you an example, the ability to to use siege weapons, right in the um, the legal codes that are written in um, the late 12th century, the king demands, right, that this is just the royal power, the right to use sieges or the death penalty, things like this. Mm-hmm. And the nobility is like, wait a minute, no, this is what her parents did and her grandparents and her great-grandparents. You have no authority to come limit us in this right. sense. So, so this is what's playing out.
0: And so then the, the correspondence between the king and these nobles gives us kind of a window into how the written word was being used in in governance. You're looking at the shift to the vernacular as this is going on. So how did James first come to use the vernacular in in his arguments with these nobles? Yeah, it's interesting
1: because taking a step back, the original um, communications between any lord and his vassal, uh, the king and the nobles in this case, was oral. Mm -hmm. so you have the ceremony where the the vassal pledges his loyalty to the lord the lord might give the vassal a fief in return they have the kiss blah 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 that is the ceremony but then to break your vassalage there's also another ceremony It usually involved a twig (laughs) the noble or a representative of the noble would break the twig as a symbol of the broken relationship between the lord and the vassal throw it at the feet of his lord, and essentially declare war. Mm-hmm. So well, now what's happening is, with um, as the written word increasingly replaces, uh, at first it um, combines with and then replaces just this oral exchange, then these messages are now being transmitted orally. And first they're transmitted in Latin, which is the language of, of writing. Before the 13th century, no king of the Crown of Aragon or of Catalonia and Aragon independently had ever written text in the vernacular. Wow. It had only been in Latin. It's only during the reign of James I that the vernacular is first utilized. Mm -hmm. And for that matter it emerges some 20-something years after he became king. I believe the earliest vernacular document produced by James's chancery is in the 1240s.
0: Why do you think that he starts using the vernacular for the Uh, first time? I, I think he's Uh, I think it's not his idea to to begin with. Um,
1: The earliest uses, even earlier than these defiance letters, Mm -hmm. are usually a way for James to placate whoever the audience was. Be it a noble or, again, we're talking about very few documents here. We're talking about less than... 0.1 0.1 of a percent of the existing documents wow. from the period. So we're talking about just a handful of documents. But these documents seem like it's sort of more of a bottom-up than a top-down. Um, James is responding to a demand among whoever his um, recipient is, mm-hmm. be it a, monast- a female monastery or a noble. or But it's really when these, these uh, defiance letters emerge in 1259 that writing in the vernacular really takes off. Uh, And by taking off, now it's 1% (laughs) of the
0: (laughs) total, so
1: we're still talking about a limited number, unlike in Castile which is pretty unique among European realms because they they appropriate the vernacular in the 12th century. And by 1219, uh, Ferdinand III is, is starting to use it regularly. And by the 1240s, when James is first using the vernacular language, that is already the dominant language in Castile. But Castile is very unique in that sense, unlike anywhere else. So they're kind of ahead of the curve. It's usually interpreted the other way around. And I think it's a, a, a prejudice against Castillo. And oh. even though it's not my, I'm, I'm not primarily a historian of Castile. It's a sort of view of, of this appendage of Europe, this backward area. So the way it's traditionally been interpreted, which I'm actually working on an article on that now, it's like, well, they didn't read Latin. Oh, okay. Those, you know, those silly Spaniards. They right, didn't have right. enough Latin to, to actually, which is clearly not the case. Yeah. In fact, it's what you said. I think they're ahead of the
0: curve. Okay, so returning to the crown of Aragon, could you tell us about these defiance letters uh, that you mentioned earlier? What what they were and what they were used for?
1: Yeah, these these defiance letters are really interesting because they um, appear first written by a group of nobles, rebel nobles. Essentially, these defiance letters are acts of war. The document where the vassal or lord breaks their vassalage, provides the reasons why. And then, of course, they absolve themselves of any responsibility for any harm they do to each other. So it usually ends with some sort of formula where like, ah, I'm not responsible for the men that I kill and the land that I destroy of yours and whatnot. What's interesting is that this group of nobles in 1259 sent their defiance, their, their act of war to the king in the common vernacular in Catalan, as opposed to Latin, which had been the language that... Um, They had delivered these messages in the past. They do it together and they sent these letters. There's four of them. Well, six. And what's interesting is that the king receives them and a month later responds to all of them in the vernacular as well. Um, Or at least I interpret it as the fact that the strategy on the nobles part worked and the king is responding to them in kind. And I argue in in my article that they are being inspired by a genre of um, troubadour poetry called sirventes which there are these political poems during the 12th and 13th century and the nobles as well as the king they will hire out these mercenaries of the written word to compose these poems against their rivals and i think that that's where they're getting the inspiration this sort of this propaganda well why don't we then write this science in the common vernacular and by doing so what they were doing is they were actually uh weaponizing vernacular language because that serves as a mechanism to attack the king because Mm -hmm. it's the language uh, we have to remember that in this period Latin is the dominant written language and in like most of Western Europe you have some sort of diglossic situation with two languages one having higher prestige and the other one having lower prestige so I borrow a lot from these sociolinguistic and linguistic anthropological concepts, to then try to interpret why the code switch, why the shift in language when writing. And the, the reason I think it's, be, it's for essentially two purposes. One is it's a break in decorum. So by doing so, it's another way to attack the king. And also, it it allows them to transmit their message clearly and evocatively to an audience that's there when the message is, is recited. So it's not just the king, but decorum who hears these attacks on the king in the language that they understand it's, it's uh it's a symbolic use of language you're using language to heighten the attack because you're using a language that's less prestigious than the one that you're used to communicating with the king the king will write back and say well you defy me i defy you in the vernacular and that exchange continues until they they reconciliate when they switch back to line
0: so it's actually kind of a ground up uh scenario where the where the nobles start using the vernacular but then this is also the first time where you see the arganese king using it as well right? It,
1: it's not the first uh example of the vernacular that dates back to 1240 but if you take all the defiance letters that survive and there are uh, several dozens of them they outnumber everything that's been produced by the chancery by the office of the key by the Office of the King uh, mm-hmm. in the vernacular since 1240 when the first one appears. So there are more defiance letters than everything else written in the vernacular by the mid 1260s. Okay.
0: So um, can you tell us a little bit more about this idea of code switching and how you use that to understand kind of the symbolism behind this use of, of the vernacular?
1: Yeah, I'm essentially borrowing work of different generations of sociolinguists and linguistic anthropologists. And their work mostly, although it could, is also applicable to, to text, is based on oral communications, how and why people shift. Traditionally, the traditional explanation for code shifting or code switching or switching from one language to another was for practical purpose. People didn't know what, how to say something in one language, so they switched to the other. So it has to do with the inability to speak it as well. But in reality, as a sociolinguist, John Gumpertz, who began questioning and others, this assumption is saying, no, we think this is intentional and there's, there's something else going on here. It's not just about uh, linguistic capability. It's also what is what is the agenda of the speaker? What are they trying to transmit? And they open this entire um, field of inquiry. So I'm basing it off of that. And specifically, there's another uh, even older sociolinguist, um, Charles Ferguson, who came up with this concept of diglossia, where you have two languages in the original definition that are related, but they're considered either, if not completely separate as distinct enough, and one of them has more prestige as a language of high prestige as opposed to the other, or others, which are languages of low prestige. So combining that glossia yeah, and concepts of code switching in the work that these these other scholars uh, in sociolinguistics and linguistic anthropology, I uh, use it to try to interpret language change in these texts. And since texts are written, I mean, these things were they were performed orally, they're not read silently, but since there's also this other level of planning that you might not have in an oral exchange I think these theories lend themselves well to find the motive for language choice mm-hmm. um, be it to add emphasis to an order or to to increase a sense of animosity by attacking someone in the, the lower prestige language what happens is as del- vernacular languages get used more and more they acquire prestige and by the mid 14th century, or even by the first quarter of the 14th century, the vernacular language is beginning to compete with Latin uh, in the royal chancery. So by the time you have serious noble rebellions in the 14th century, because after the 1280s, the re- the, the nobility is essentially suppressed, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it'll it won't it'll take a few generations for there to be serious. Uh, there's, there are always rebellions, but serious threats to the king. Once that happens, what's interesting is that the language used then in the 14th century um, when writing these defiance letters is land because the regular communication between the nobles and the king is already in the vernacular. Caloran and their no Catalan nobles, Aragonese, if they're Aragonese nobles. So what happens is then when they defy each other, they switch to land because that's the um the language that's not used that's um, that's the marked language the unmarked language this is another sociolinguistic theory mm-hmm. uh, that uses um, marked language the language that's used often is not marked while the language that's not used often that's the marked language so if you're using that when you're signaling something uh, and i believe that they're signaling again this, this animosity this this Way to attack the Keen, and the Keen responds in kind because it's uh, it works. What's interesting is the peace documents, which are in Latin. Keen might win in the long run in the sense that there's increasing centralization. The Keen does manage to increase his jurisdiction, but the price that he has to pay is essentially continually forgiving the nobility their rebellions, which is interesting, because after they are offered, he might keep one of the nobles in prison for a couple of months, but they get all their castles back, they get all their properties back, um, or most of them. So it's this sort of ebb and flow. But increasingly the centralization of the monarch
0: okay so this is just being a long process yeah it's, <laughs>
1: it's sort of it's kind of like round two of a 15 round
0: yeah. uh, title fight <laughs> right okay great so we're going to take a short break here and um, when we come back we'll talk about uh, James's successor and how he starts to use the vernacular as well in his writings Welcome back to the program. So now that we've looked at the use of uh, code switching by James the First, I thought we could also take a look at his successor, Pedro or Peter the First, the way in which he used code switching in a new way um, during the French Crusade of 1285. So could you give us a little bit of background about what this crusade was about and how it got started? Absolutely. Um,
1: James, uh, earlier in the block, you asked me what what. Constituted the lands of the crown of Aragon. Mm-hmm. And this is a term that we as historians use. It really didn't exist at the time. And as I mentioned, James inherited the kingdom of uh, Aragon and the county of Catalonia, but he expanded. it. He doubled his realms within his lifetime because he conquered um, Valencia, which he created as its own separate kingdom, the kingdom of Valencia. Uh, before conquering Valencia, he conquered the island of Mallorca which he also set up as its own kingdom. So now you have the kingdom of Mallorca, you have the kingdom of Valencia, as well as the county of um, Catalonia, or the county of Barcelona, and the kingdom of Aragon. On top of that, he's sort of kind of visionary, and he marries his eldest uh, son, Peter, to the heiress of Sicily, Constanza. And Sicily at this moment is being fought over by um, the, the two sort of main forces in European politics, uh, the Ghibellines and the Guelphs, those who support um, the Emperor and those who support the papacy and this civil war between the papacy and the Empire. It's more complicated but for for our purposes, sure. Um, and the French are at the time dominant. They control Sicily. Charles of Anjou. Um, the brother of the king of France, of St. Louis. He is essentially setting up these, I don't want to call it an empire, but this this influence in the Mediterranean, and the heart of it is Sicily. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a rebellion against Charles. Peter was already married to Constanza. Constanza represents the party that's the enemy of the French, right? They are the Ghibellines as opposed to the Guelphs. And now then, Peter decides that he's married to Constanza, decides that he will claim his wife's inheritance and he goes to Sicily during this rebellion, known as the Sicilian Vespers, aids them and essentially kicks Charles out and defeats the French. Um, By doing so, he adds Sicily, which is an important strategic center. Sicily is at the heart of the Mediterranean. So it's it's in a strategic location for trade, as well as it also provides a lot of grain. So it's also uh, important in that sense. And then the papacy, of course, is backing uh, the French. Uh, the pope at the time Martin IV is a Frenchman and this brings then the crown of Aragon into a clash with the papacy and what the papacy does in order to protect French interest in the Mediterranean is long story short declare a crusade against the crown of Aragon Mm -hmm. and this is now the first time a pope is using a crusade strictly for political purposes right I mean there had been crusades called against Christians before the Albigensian crusade but it was at least against heretics you know Uh this is clearly politics and he invalidates Peter and names the French king as the heir and successor to Peter and as the king of the French. And an army of the French invade under Philip, and they invade Catalonia. But you know, this is the biggest threat the crown of Aragon has ever had. The, yeah, The kingdom of France is much richer, it's much stronger, and Peter is scared. So that's, <laughs> that's the, so the background of the crusade. Uh-huh. The papacy and the French are reacting to Aragonese expansion in the Mediterranean. And all the preparations for the Crusader are in land, which is the traditional language of communication between the king and his and his subjects. So Peter, as well as his son, his heir Alfonso, are writing to everyone, to, to nobles in in Aragon, and nobles in Catalonia, people in Valencia, to prepare. We, you know, this is the day that we expect the French to come, and this and we all this stuff. And then the French invade. And right. when the French invade, the French invaded faster so, or, or or sooner than the than the. Um, than peter and his host expected so then he sends out this flourish of letters right and he sends them all and he sends them in the vernacular in the respective vernaculars aragonese to people in aragon catalan to people in catalonia and then aragonese or catalan depending on where in valencia because Mm -hmm. you have both aragonese and catalan settlers in valencia and he writes them in the vernacular saying urgently the french have invaded before we need you here now and that's that's the background to these um vernacular orders that Peter is sending out to his vassals. This hasn't really been studied, but I guess the first inclination one might have is, well, it's just for practical purposes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the language that everyone would understand. You don't have to wait for someone to translate it from Latin to the vernacular, the key news in a hurry. It just makes sense that he might do this for this purpose. I don't find that convincing at all, because all business was conducted in Latin. Every city council, every little podunk town had a priest or someone that could read in Latin or could read. And chances are in the 13th century you read in the vernacular you you had some training in Latin because primary education at least how you learned to read and write was through Latin. Right. So I don't think there's anyone before 1300 that can read and write in the vernacular that doesn't have some Latin Mm -hmm. uh, training. So I don't buy that. I think it's, it's, it's influenced by his father's uh, policies of appropriating the vernacular with this communication for symbolic purposes with the nobles. Because Peter will continue. When his father dies, Peter is still fighting these feudal wars with these nobles, and it's the same pattern as with his father. When he is writing a, um, an antagonistic letter to a noble, he's in, when they're at war, he writes it in the vernacular. But then, when they make peace, they resort to that. So that that pattern continues, and again, this is this indexical um, nature of code switching. So the switch from Latin to the vernacular had be- had become an index of animosity. Right. What Peter is doing is he is using it, but not for for animosity, but for emphatical purposes, for urgency. It's not what you expect. You expect your king to write to you in Latin. When the message comes in the vernacular, wait a minute. It sort of raises um, an antenna. On her. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. Why
1: is why is he writing to me in the vernacular? And I think again, it's it's for emphatic purposes. It's not because to make sure that the message gets spread quicker. And, and plus, the people who are delivering the messages are saying them anyway. They're they're right. communicating with people. It's not like it's like oh, I'm not going to tell you what happens until you open the letter and and read it. I don't at least I don't think that's the way it works. Yeah. So I think it's the king who is desperate at the moment, who's terrified. And when I mean the king, I'm saying the king and his closest advisors and and, and within his royal chancery, within the royal court, and says, well, how do I, you know, how do I get this point across? Clearly, because he's already told people, I need you here and here on this day in Latin, but then the French invade, it's like, okay, well, now I need you here and here. And it's sort of another way of of adding emphasis.
0: So I guess he's like his father, he's adding emphasis using the vernacular, but now it's not necessarily... To show animosity. Exactly. It can to show be to desperation. His alley. Desperation. Almost. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, did this technique wind up being effective? Was I, Was he able I to thought. beat back the French? Well, yes, but th- it wasn't because of that. It wasn't technique. because of that, no. Okay. Because,
1: uh, for example, the Aragonese didn't come to his help. Oh. Uh. <laughs> they, 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 they stayed back. Um, but no, the, the, they were able to hold the French off and defeat the French. And the French will be humiliated and they will return. Home and th- this is a huge victory for the Crown of Aragon. But I don't I don't think it's because of the, the vernacular messages. But the, but it but it is interesting. And in the registers it's also interesting because it's saying uh, this this letter and it has a, an example was was sent to all the nobles in Aragon and it's in Aragonese and this this was sent to all the nobles in Catalonia and it's also in Aragonese and clearly it's probably just uh, a mistake that they, <sighs> they they rewrote the Aragonese when I doubt that they sent an Aragonese letter to one of these subjects in Catalonia and Catalan Because when you look at the other examples, and they're all in Catalan. So I I think it's, again, it shows you this sort of rush in the chancery to get these, because they're writing everything out by hand, to get this stuff out as soon as possible. And there was a screw-up into the register.
0: So does Peter's increased of the use of the vernacular then continue forward after him and it becomes even more widespread in the kingdom?
1: That's a good question. Uh It does. But what happens is things begin to change in the 14th century. So you don't have significant feudal wars between the end of Peter's reign and a decade into the 14th or or even longer into the 14th century. So that's why we don't have any more defiance letters in the vernacular because there aren't any major clashes Um, the keen was victorious. The queen was able to defeat the nobles in each of these feudal um, battles. And it's, again, part of a larger pattern right. taking place in Europe. But when the clashes start up again in the 14th century, what's happened is the vernacular has really sort of exploded. And mm-hmm. the king is now writing messages that are not just for emphatic purposes in the vernacular. Vernacular is increasing. It's gradually increasing, especially after 1300. So by 13 30, 1340, a good, not the majority, but a good chunk of the royal documents survive in the vernacular. So the vernacular wouldn't have that, it wouldn't have the ability anymore to be so emphatic because they're using it in their right. daily communication. So that strategy sort of disappears. What's interesting though is what happens in the second half of the 14th century, towards towards the second half, is as the vernacular writing becomes more and more customary between the king and the subjects, then the language that they resort to to declare war on each other is actually latin oh really and it sort of you know switches on its head and then latin becomes the language in which the nobles and the king declare war to each other and then when they declare peace they return to what's becoming their increasing uh, mode of communication which is using their vernacular languages which ah. are becoming more and more standardized so that that um, strategy of using the, defo- the vernacular language to either demonstrate animosity or emphasize a message sort of disappears because it doesn't it loses its value as the vernacular language becomes more and
0: more common. So it seems to me that this idea that you have of, of using code switching as a way to understand the way in which these kings are using these different languages can have broader implications. I,
1: I, I think so. yeah, and that's the point. The, the, um, at least for me, it wasn't really um, a history of language by itself. It's of what does this what does language use and the way they're using language, the way they're switching and writing from one language or other. What does that tell us about the changes that are going on in society, cultural changes? Mostly cultural, but also political changes. Um, And how does that play into it? Um, And it's sort of these larger themes that we're talking about. The rise of the written word, the rise of lay literacy, the centralization of the monarchy. And you get a a different perspective on how this is working through language choice Mm -hmm. or code switching. So I think that's the, the, um, the larger value of my research in these articles. It's not so much to only understand... How the evolution of language choice reflects larger change in history, but to see language choice as not only practical, but also could be used, it could be very symbolic as well. It's not only um, vernacular languages, that, when it's been studied for the most part, and that's not the only case, but a lot of times it's, uh, scholars really just look at the, the practical benefits of it, which exist, of course, because more people understand the vernacular than line But I think there's a lot more going on. Um, and I think understanding maybe some of these symbolic uses of code switching will help us better understand
0: um, the society and yeah. its culture. Absolutely. I'm convinced. Oh, thank you. <laughs> And and I th- it sounds like there are a lot more possibilities that you're that you're opening up uh, for future research.
1: Yeah, there are. So the, these articles are essentially they emerged from my dissertation, which was looking at um, the appropriation of vernacular writing by the monarchy in the mm-hmm. Crown of Aragon. Uh, but I'm also working now on a, I'm expanding that dissertation into a book project, which is going to be I'm uh, something language and power in the Crown of Aragon. But it'll start early, it'll start with the earliest uses of vernacular writing in society, so it won't be just focused on the monarchy, it will be focused on the lands of the Crown of Aragon, how vernacular writing emerges and what's its relationship to how power is exercised. Mm -hmm. And a big theme in that book is gonna be, again, this um, connection between the literary and by literary, you know, in verse and non-administrative uses, and in administrative and, and legal uses, that this this is a very artificial, even though they, they, they also had it. Um, again, I mentioned diglossia like in different genres, but separately, we in, 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 the, in the contemporary period, we sort of separate between, oh, these are literary uses, these are non literary uses. This is very artificial. The, um, the way that they're using language and writing for administrative purposes are influenced by the literary. Right. of language so that that's what the bigger project is looking at and essentially how language is used to exercise power specifically uh switching from one language to the other
0: great well we'll uh, be looking for the for the book and maybe have to have you on again sometime I and talk about that. some other parts i would love that all right well thank you so much for thank coming you. on the program pleasure to
1: have this conversation with you yeah thank my, you my so pleasure much.
0: thank you for listening to this episode of historias the Spanish History Podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes.